0: Um, I write for the Chicago Tribune, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, recently returned from Baghdad, and I spent a significant amount of time last year and the the prior year in Saudi Arabia, and so I want to share with you two images I have. Um, I'm not an academic, which I, in old age, suddenly realized is an important thing to say because my visions are limited to what I see, Um, and more increasingly, my generalizations are smaller, more narrower. And what divisions I'm going to share with you are senses of two societies that were closed for a tremendously long period of time and now have opened up. Two societies that have lived for a period of, of um, quietness, somewhat suppression, somewhat uh, oppression, and have opened up. And there are three scenes that that I, I, I think about that very strongly capture my mind what, I'm, what the situation I'm discussing. And the first was the day after Saddam Saying was captured in Baghdad. I was in the north and then I came down to the little tiny hole or the, or the little hut where he was living in. And if he wanted to know what I he was spending his time, I went next to his bed and he was reading Crime and Punishment in Arabic. I don't know what the meaning of that is, but uh, that was, it was halfway through the book. Um, and as I stood at the hole, a man came beside me, well-dressed, and said, I'm so proud that this finally happened to Saddam a peasant. He came back to where he lived and what he deserved. And I looked at the man and I said, don't I know you from somewhere? And he said, my name is Sue P. Da, da, da. And I said, I met you in 1988. And you were the Reuters Bureau Chief here. Yes, I was, he said. And, and he said, yes, I was the Reuters Bureau Chief. I was very, very careful, but I made a mistake and I went to prison for a number of years and I came here just to be satisfied to see how he went to prison, how he was captured, Saddam how he finally had justice. And to me, the message there was the sense of redemption. A man who I thought, this fellow that I met at the hole where Saddam was captured, would never make a mistake, and you had to be very careful up until Saddam's fall that you would not anger the regime, had somehow angered the regime and gone to prison. So there was a sense of immediate pride. In the beginning of the war, I was in uh, Saudi Arabia last year, and I was sitting in the offices of Shaq al-Aus Jeddah, and we were watching on El Ghazira the, uh, if you remember the, everyone's, the scene of um, Saddam's statue coming down, I was with two young journalists, and they were getting swamped with telephone calls, and people were saying, this is not real, this is not happening, this could not be happening here in the Arab world, and they're saying, no, it's really happening, it's just the true thing. And and we talked at length um, about the shock A, the shock this could happen in the Arab world, Americans in Baghdad, Saddam's overthrow, why is this happening, and seeing it on live television. So several things taking place, the role of Arab television, the opening up, the attack, the invasion, the intrusion, the Arab world, and the confrontation of what that means. Now, one of the journalists I talked to was, if you follow Shaq al um writes about religion a great deal. And he comes from a community, a very interesting community, who a few years earlier was imprisoned in Saudi Arabia because he belonged to the hardline Islamic underground. Um, a true believer in uh, overthrowing Saudi Arabia's what he considered the westernization. Uh, he belonged to a group that would uh, set fire to video stores. Um, anything that showed uh, a Western image and it, what they considered decadence. He went to prison, lived for a while, fled Saudi Arabia, traveled around, and came back and had an awakening. And the awakening was, his militant brothers had a vision of life and a vision of reality he didn't accept, and so he had transformed uh, his own beliefs towards a more moderate, acceptable point of view. And now was covering religion in Saudi Arabia for this mainline newspapers and his life was threatened because he knew the underground so well, he knew where they were and what they were doing. This is March of last year. If you begin, you begin to see a period of attacks taking place and the Saudi government begins to recognize and acknowledge the fact that there is a dangerous underground. There is uh, a group of people. Two images for me which say two things. Both societies going through massive changes and I'll briefly run through what I think the changes that I've seen in both Saudi Arabia and in, in Iraq. Um, let me begin with Iraq first. In Iraq you find, let me leap into quick, um, broad generalizations, people who are uh, overwhelmed, stunned, um, many people who lived in a Republic of Fear, the very right common term, um, who began to stop feeling. I visited a psychiatrist at the one psychiatric hospital in all of Iraq, even uh, Russia. in in Baghdad and I expected from him there are 74 beds for 25 million people um, because Saddam felt that mental health was a Western problem, not an Iraqi problem. And I said, well, you must have a lot of people suffering from post-traumatic shock. And he said, no, we don't. We really don't. We have people suffering from no feelings. Three wars, years of sanctions, rapes, humiliations and other sufferings have left a large number of Iraqis without the ability to feel. They can only get through tomorrow. They have seen so much destruction, so much disorder, that their only expectations are they want to live and continue. So you have a group of Iraqis who feel that way. Then you have large groups of Iraqis who have suffered for a great period of time. If the population, generally speaking, is 60% 60 Shia, and then we have a chart over here, and this chart over here shows um, mass graves, uh, about 60% of the mass graves that took place in Iraq over the period of uh, Saddam's rule were Shia. So you have a large group that were uh, suffered extensively, and so for the Shia, what you find now is the first coming, sense of coming to power, and the community varies markedly. So you have political groups that have lived in exile, groups that have remained in Iraq, uh, and among the Shia, what, you, what I think is what, what, what I found and what I talked to, folks, was a sense of coming back to power. How do we examine that power? Well, for a long time, um, Saddam eliminated the intellectual, articulate, uh, clerical leadership of uh, the Shia community. Um, those who had existed and continued to exist had a uh, practice, um, uh, and by their own religious beliefs, a sense of quietism, and, and, uh, and Sheikh uh, Sistani is one of those. Um, Now you see coming forward a group of clerics who, who have a vision for uh, the Shia within Iraq. Another group which has an angrier uh, vision which relates to the bigger picture which says, these people have come and helped free us, but they're invaders, the Americans, and the smaller, far smaller um, occupying forces. And um, this is now time to take back um, what our country should be. Almost every speech, that you hear um, talking about the concerns of the Shia begin with, remember the rebellion against the British. Remember how we stood up, yet we were defeated. It is not that different. I'm talking now about after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the sense among the various groups in Iraq, and at the end of the First World War, which is these people are taking away our rights. Once, it, for Iraqis, Americans, unfortunately, didn't have a sense of history don't understand this. I can jump for a second and talk about that. But for many Iraqis, there is a sense we are repeating what happened in the 1920s once again. Uh, our country collapsed for many years of oppression. New people have come with their own image of our life, and they're enforcing this to us. And then you have the population, generally speaking, of Sunnis in Iraq, about 20%, who for many years were the ruling party of Iraq, um, benefited both from the, Brit- the British with imperialists, and continued on for the many years, especially under the um, uh, Ba'ath party who formed the core of a 1.5 million member Ba'ath party at least. For them there's a sense of dispossession, a sense of things are being taken away. In between the political groups, the, S- the Sunni, the Shia, there are moderates on both sides uh, who are looking beyond how we can access democracy um, and a good example would be Adnan Pacerji, um who was uh, comes from a well known um, Sunni family and is a member of the U.S. appointed governing council. These Iraqis find themselves in a difficult situation. Um, when it comes to politics, they don't have um, clubhouses, they don't have meetings, they don't have the mosque to organize the charities, and they find themselves at a sense of loss. Uh, and so, in this community, if anything, what you find is a sense of concern that they want the process to wait before they can begin, because they think if there's an election now being held soon, that they will suffer markedly, um, because they can't reach out. But they think that their message would, would, would be uh, a message that most Iraqis would accept. And you have, so we have 60%, 20%, the remaining population will be less than about 20% would be the Kurdish population living in the north and the, and the, uh, provinces in the north. For these um, Iraqis, there is a feeling that the 10 years that they've lived by themselves, away from Saddam's rule, cannot be forgotten, and there is a tremendous amount of uh, desire to be part of a bigger Iraq in a federal system. What am I talking about? A system where they maintain control over where they live, their borders, but they're part of a bigger Iraq. Um, I was in Kirkut. Which falls below um, the area that the uh, Kurds had ruled um, independently after the uh, first Gulf War. And I was talking to a Kurdish leader. Kirkuk was a city shared by Arabs, Kurds, Christians, and Muslims. Under Saddam, Arabs were um, brought in to re- replace a large Kurdish population. Christians were removed also to Arabize and Muslimize the town. As soon as the war ended, um, thousands of Kurds flooded back into um, to Kirkuk to reclaim the, the city they felt was theirs. This is also a city of a historic Turkmen population, and the um, the the, uh, Kirk, the Kurdish leader of one of the parties there said, "We are not given permission by our graves to forget what happened to us after all the years of our suffering." And there's a common term you hear again from Kurds, which is that the Kurdish suffering does not allow them to trust the rest of Iraq, what could happen? Well, it can make sense. Uh, considering that there's 20 years of warfare, gas, and other forms, they're still finding people in villages throughout um, Iraq suffering from forms of leukemia, cancer. Iraq, as one doctor, in Erbil said to me, does not have a, a medical statistician that can um, calculate vast amount of medical damage done to the Kurdish population of the period of warfare. So in, so you have three communities who are brought together, who have differences, who have fears of one another, um, who are um, the Kurds, feel that the Americans have been their friends and they're relying upon the Americans to enforce certain rules. And as you've seen the situation is in the current prelude to a constitution, there's a concern that their rights not be um, ignored. And then there's a small population, about 3% of Iraq's um, citizens, 25 million, are Christian, approximately speaking. It's very difficult to know what the number is because of the vast amount of of Iraqi Christians who left uh, Iraq, and the bulk of the Christians, almost the majority, are um, Assyrian Chaldeans. For these um, who are spread between Baghdad and the north, is there's a uh, again a feeling that um, their situation is much better than before. Those uh, Syrian Chaldeans who fled the north and live with the Kurds feel that they have felt comfortable and accepted in the north. Not everyone knows, but now their concern is that their rights will be dissipated, and in if there is an Islamic Republic, that they would suffer um, their loss of. Uh, of power. And there has been some, the urban myth in Iraq is that there have been rampant attacks and abuses of Christians. That's not true from what I could guess. There have been attacks. Um, and there has been a uh, conservancy growing in, in Iraq. But um, for many, there is at the same time among the Christians a sense that now we can speak our own language, meaning Assyrian. Um, now that we can have uh, our services. And now that we can uh, uh, practice our our own faith were less uh, dangerous, and um, during the um, the years of the Baath Party rule, about 200 um, villages in the north that belonged to uh, small uh, Assyrian Chaldean villages were uh, removed and destroyed because of the fighting, because of uh, relocation, and there's a, there's a desire to move back. So you have you have three major groups of people, four if you you know. Counting everyone who are all searching for a re-identification, I'm struck also, um, despite everything you hear in Iraq, and that's why I tend to be one of the few optimists, is that Iraqis suffered so much um, that there is a core belief that we cannot let this happen to us. We must mean, you must bring back um, our desire to save the country that we have, and I I have two instances which which move me. Um, that I went to visit the Iraqi Women's League one afternoon in Baghdad, and it was just as a consequence of, I was looking for different groups who would come back over the the time to see how they were feeding back into Iraq, and much to my surprise, the Iraqi Women's League was considered an underground threatened organization to the the Ba'ath Party leadership. 300 of their leaders were killed, 1,000 were imprisoned, and hundreds fled. Those who didn't flee were forced underground their crime, women's rights was a major belief, um, and their, their uh, cry for democracy for women uh, with equal rights across uh, Iraq. And I visited them in this destroyed building, no electricity, windows dist- knocked out, the worst of all rubble they're living among. And the sense was, we are back. Um, we And the headline on the, from one of the newspapers that they began to publish, and I forgot in Arabic, but I was tickled when I figured out what it finally said. It said, we were here before we're back again. And I think this is an example of women, intellectuals, um, communists, socialists, human rights individuals. There is a core of Iraqis who have suffered so much, uh, who have a desire, who come back and say, we have to negotiate. We can't lose these values. And you see people uh, who are struggling for that. My, uh, my faith is that they will uh, prevail and that moderation compromise understanding will take place outside of the irritating other factors which bring all these groups to struggle against each other there was a um, three things you see in iraq um, people can't make enough banners um, the only demonstrations that existed in, in, in the saddam was demonstrations in favor of Saddam. Well nowadays, you can; everyone can demonstrate in Iraq, and so um, banner makers are almost millionaires, so to speak, in Iraq, because they're all making banners. And And I wanted to have a banner made from our little journalist group, and we said, no, big wait, you have to wait for banners. And so one day I was driving near south of um, Baghdad in the town of Hilla and they see a banner, and it says the Hilla Human Rights Organization. And I visited, I went inside, and I said, can you tell me what is this? And he said, well, this is the, uh, we're a human rights group, and we decided to um, teach democracy, tolerance, faith among all. We're having a meeting, in fact, next week between Christians, Muslims, if there are any Jews left in Iraq, we'll find one of them and they'll come to our meeting. Um, and I was very impressed by this. And I said, well, why are you doing this? because we suffered so much, we must restore this. And, and I was a bit shy in asking because the man I was talking to was almost blind. And, and at the end of our conversation, I said, tell me something about yourself. And he said, well, I'm a journalist and my crime was... I, can, I criticize Saddam, and every time I went to prison, he would put me in a cell that was even darker, not he, but his his underlings would put me in a cell, even darker, and never giving me my medicine for my eyes. I said, well, was there anything else he did? He says, well, yes, I, I have to tell you the truth. Um, have you heard of John Dewey? I said, yes, he says, I believe in John Dewey. I was a practitioner of liberal pragmatism, and that was my crime. People like that, if they can somehow um, form a core of, of uh, Iraq. Um, I think Iraq will exist. There are many other factors leading against that. Let me jump with these very broad issues to my to Saudi Arabia, which I'm very interested and in, very concerned about. Um, and I find Saudi Arabia to be a fascinating place, boiling over, um, changes you had never imagined before. In During the first Gulf War, I spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia, and then I returned briefly after the war. And and, um, the society then and now is is a very different society. What am I talking about? You have three different groups. You have one group of moderates, largely Western-educated so-called liberals, who are very frustrated with the amount of progress. Most of them are businessmen, small number businesswomen. Um, who feel you can't do business in this country, things are backward, and um, we must have change, we must move forward. And they have begun to agitate, to write letters, to hold meetings, to talk in their houses. Um, There's a second group, and this would be the uh, reforming Islamists. These are uh, Saudis who feel quite comfortable with the legacy of uh, of Saudis' um, uh, beliefs, but feel that the beliefs have gone in the wrong direction. Um, Who don't feel as comfortable with uh, what they see taking place in the West, but feel that Saudi Arabia has to to modernize, if possible, its Salafi, uh, Wahhabi roots. And so from these groups, um, you find um, people writing letters and and, um, raising criticism. And then you find the third group, and this would be the radical groups, which have their origins in 1979, 1989, 1991, 1992, and these are the more hardline, conservative Saudis who believe that the royal family, and an, and I think a Saudi said, I was talking about the government one day, and a Saudi said there is no government, it's only a family, I think he's right, um, that, the, that Saudi family, the 15,000 princes, and there is no count on the princesses, who rule the country? Not the fifteen thousand who rule, but who have a role have basically um, led Saudi into corruption and decadence, um, and and have have lost control. Saudi Arabia is a unique society. What you tend to find, and there's a broad remember they have a broad family here ruling this country, is that you find a um, conservative regime that is more moderate than some of its more conservative members. What am I talking about? And that, faced with the, um, the fact that 15 to 19 uh, attackers and in, in 9-11 were Saudis, Saudi Arabia slowly began to acknowledge publicly that, yes, there is a problem within Saudi Arabia. We are educating people um, whose beliefs are far more extreme than we want to support. And so as a consequence, in the last year, you've seen about a thousand Imams fired. Um, you've seen um, major controls placed on charities. Um, you have seen uh, limitations on um, the activities of certain organizations because the Saudis are acknowledging for the first time we have made mistakes. And this is very difficult. Up until recently, um, there was almost no recognition from the family, which that was that this was an issue. Um, the the even disputing the fact uh, that. Um, the 15 to the 19 could have been Saudis, because the argument was, well, they really don't represent Saudi Arabia, they're really all poor people, they're Bedouins, and Bedouins couldn't do these things, they couldn't carry out these kinds of attacks. And um, the Minister of uh, of Interior and Intelligence, Prince Naif, uh, who denied the fact that uh, Bin Laden could have attacked um, New York, it had to be a Zionist operation, the Saudis are now beginning to acknowledge that These are all forces within Saudi Arabia, that are competing for attention. The problem is you have a king who's very sick, who doesn't rule, King Fahd. Instead, you have a day-to-day ruler, Crown Prince Abdullah, who doesn't have the complete control of the family. He controls one wing. Another wing doesn't agree with him. Can change take place in a country when the ruler is not strong and absolute? No. It can move forward. And so as a result, earlier this year, Saudi Arabia acknowledged the fact that we would have the beginnings of a human rights organization. we so were very excited about the idea. <laughs> For the first time, people can speak about human rights. The problem was that all the people appointed to it were government bureaucrats, people of government knew, very few p- critics were allowed. However, there was an atmosphere, and two things have happened as a consequence of this atmosphere. Last year, about the time that the war took place, you had things being said in newspapers you'd never heard before. We are our own cause of our own terrorism, people began to say. Um, the Wahhabi beliefs we embraced over the years have been kidnapped. They've been taken away. And there was one newspaper called Al-Watan, which is a, which tried to position itself as the USA Today of Saudi Arabia. Um, it's moderate liberal beliefs were stunning to many Saudis, but they went too far. And so the editor, um, Jamal Khashoggi, was removed. He was the, in the last two years or three years, you've had 14, I think, Saudi editors who've lost their jobs. At the same time, earlier this year, you had a group of, remember I talked about three different factions, well, moderates, liberals, who decided this was a chance. Things are being said never before. And it is quite astounding, you pick up some signing newspapers, to say, criticism, why can't women drive a car? Why do I need to have my government's, uh, my, sorry, my my husband's um, approval to go here or there. These, and then you even began to have, um, in one newspaper, a, a female columnist. Well, they, this small group, filed um, a, a, um, a petition to the king, and the result of the petition was they were arrested. Now, Saudi officials say they were only arrested because they lied. They used other people's names who didn't take part in, in the petition, and they violated other people's rights. If you talk to the uh, petitioners, that wasn't true. Essentially, what happened was that the liberals came forward thinking the situation had changed. They raised their hands, and they were cut down. I don't think Saudi Arabia ever, let's strike that. I don't think Saudi Arabia in the coming years will be overthrown. Saudi Arabia will collapse. The regime as we know it will morph into a state of upheaval. I do think changes will take place in Saudi Arabia, not the kinds of changes that you would expect with all this turmoil taking place. And that largely is because of this extensive power of the regime the weakness of the critics, and the inability of the more moderate and Islamic reform groups to take any action that can have a sustaining power. Um, With that continuing, you have a dilemma. Saudi Arabia is a wealthy country, wealthy beyond belief to many other Arab countries, but its wealth is coming down. The per capita income today is approximately one half of what it was 20 years ago. They haven't run out of oil, but they have many more people. Um, When you have so many, the population has grown so markedly, the revenues can only support so many people. If the population continues at the level it is, and oil revenues continue at the level they are, Saudi Arabia's per capita income by the year 2010 will equal what Iraq was before the invasion occurred. So you have a population explosion, declining revenue, a large group of people who don't work, some people who aren't familiar with work, and and that's why you have problems. 70% Seventy percent of the workforce is foreign in Saudi Arabia, brought in to do jobs. You have a you, and you have a country um, that has leaped in three in three generations from dire poverty to relative wealth. That is finding both its Arabic roots its Islamic roots, yet is ex- in the all the Arab world. I think I think Saudi Arabia exerts a force parallel to that of Egypt um, in political and in religious. Um, uh, respect so these changes are very important in in Saudi Arabia I've generalized I've summarized I did what I'd say I wouldn't do Um, I've gone beyond the barriers let me before I I stop let me just um, make this offer Um, I've been held by the secret police in different countries and I don't mind you asking questions either so um, please I urge you you know don't hold back I know a few people who respect newspapers or or journalists, everyone has their own theories about what we do for a living. But once we get through, I'd be glad to talk about how I do my work, how journalists cover the Arab world, the Muslim world, and I'd like to hear what you have to say. Thank you. you
1: I wonder if, yeah, they work, amazing, wonderful, because I'd rather sit down. I'm going to f- sound really boring after something as lively as. I, first of all, I haven't been to Iraq or Saudi Arabia in my whole life, uh, but I've I've uh, been looking recently at this whole issue of reform. Some of my comments are going to be directly related to what you've said, and some may look a little bit theoretical and kind of to the side of what you said. And uh, in doing so, I was simply reacting to the title of the um, of the. Um, Uh, Lecture. So I was focusing and I was obsessed, maybe this is my personal obsession, uh, with the word of reform. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, this because um, I must tell you, as uh, as I'm an Egyptian and I read the Egyptian press, and I I can't pick up any Egyptian magazine or newspaper without seeing. tons of articles you know on on this issue so it's a preoccupation that's real in the arab world for better or for worse and i think it's 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 a wonderful preoccupation Um, i was particularly intrigued by your comments on saudi arabia because it's a country uh that's always even in the arab press i mean not just in america in the american press but it's always dismissed as sui generis uh, you know all by itself going according, following its own drum. And as somebody who's really interested in anthropology and how people actually do things and not just what they say, uh, I I refuse to believe that it was as uniform as as depicted in both our presses. Mm -hmm. So I I really uh, enjoyed hearing that there's kind of a variety of opinions and uh, moderates and radicals and so on. Um, Of course, the whole issue of reform is, I mean, I must say, even we Arabs catch ourselves saying, well, we're not like Saudi Arabia, you know, we have more freedoms and so on, uh, but it is a process. The The idea of opening up is not going to happen overnight, uh, contrary to the current administration's notions about, you know, spoon-feeding people with democracy and setting them off onto, onto their mer- merry way. Uh, it's a very long, very arduous process, um, and I just wanted to mention in this context uh, that a month ago, uh 13 saudi reform reformists i guess you you might want to call them that they were moderate uh, people who simply wanted to distribute a petition uh they they believed in the legitimacy of the family uh they weren't challenging that they wanted to work within the system Uh, and uh, they were jailed Uh, they had to sign off you know in order to get released that they would stop doing you know passing around the petition for increased reform and uh, not talk to the media. Uh, three of them refused to do that, and they're still in jail. Um, so obviously, I mean, I don't want to be a party pooper, but it's it's a very good direction that they're going in. And obviously, as in all Arab countries, it's going to have, you know, fits. it's going to be in fits and starts. Uh, there's a lot, you know, about uh, Iraq. It's kind of confusing to me. Uh, there's so many groups, it seems to me. and. Some of them are more secularly minded than others, and even within the kind of religiously focused, we have uh, moderates and and more radical. I guess the two names that come to mind are Sistani versus Sadr. I just was wondering how different are they? Um, uh, what is their attitude towards Iran? I mean, these are, these are not necessarily questions mm-hmm. uh, that we know, but they, this is something that preoccupies me in that kind of uh, current situation. And then I remember before the war in Iraq, we are, we often have the pleasure of being visited at this university by the CIA. And uh, they they would always talk about how the worst possible thing that, that could happen and the thing that they would just shove to the side is democracy or not, they're not going to allow a religiously minded, uh, uh, you know, group to take hold um, in any Arab country. Uh, I mean, is it right to say that they've kind of bowed to present realities because we see a kind of uh, soft-spokenness towards Sistani, who doesn't approve of a secular, uh, secular government, who wants to accord Islam a particular uh, important place in the legal uh, system of Iraq? Uh, So although he may not be a a radical, he's certainly not a secularist. So what is, you know, what is the content of this democracy that Iraq is supposedly going to be a crucible for, a lab test for? I mean, does it, does it have to be like secular Western democracy or or is the U.S. kind of accepting a more fluid notion, a more kind of um, culturally based notion of democracy as a kind of a process that's you know, relative to each country and what their value system is and what they deem priorities and so on. So maybe maybe this whole issue of reforming the Middle East will open the door to a redefinition, maybe a broader definition of what it is, which brings me, I guess, you know, we people who work in universities are obsessed with words and labels and stuff. And so one of one of the words that um, so democracy is one of them. Another one is moderate. What is a moderate? Uh, yeah, but, but, uh, uh, yeah, technically, of course, it means something, but it seems to be acquiring, and I wish we would stick to lexical meanings, uh, but sometimes they acquire, you know, meanings apart from their original meanings, so it seems that a moderate, um, the word moderate has acquired a kind of substance. A moderate is a person who goes with U.S. policy. I'm not trying to be facetious, but is that our de- current definition of moderate? Or is being moderate accepting a kind of uh, method to discourse with people who disagree with you? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if we define it kind of in its stark lexical way and not give it a particular substance, do we not find in the Arab world a lot of uh, intellectuals and potential kind of leaders who, while not sharing the vision, the substantive vision of U.S. policy in the Middle East, uh, can work still work with the U.S. If not this administration, hopefully a different administration. So yeah, yeah, labels like that I'm always kind of very intrigued in how we use them. Um, let's see. Yeah, so so yeah, I'm particularly in- intrigued about the the U.S. acceptance of a kind of role for the Shiite uh, clergy. I also was wondering when you're um, conducting your, res- your, uh, I don't, what is it, it's not research, what, what do you call what you do? Your, yeah, it's research, uh-huh. it's research. Actually, I was thinking about the difference in what we do as scholars or as, as, as journalists, and it's basically the same thing, uh-huh. but uh, the metaphor I came up with was kind of like, you know, certain medicines are approved by the FDA because uh-huh. they've undergone, like, thousands of years of uh-huh. testing, and others, ca- doctors kind of feel they're very, very, useful and use them, but experimentally. Right. So kind of, we, we're the plodding, slow ones who need the FDA mm-hmm. approval, and you're the ones who give us what we want right now when we want mm-hmm. it. So, yeah, but basically we're engaged in curing ignorance, so, mm-hmm. it's, so it's not that big a difference. Um, yeah, there, there are also, I, I want to know how you feel about a lot of links, uh, you know, how the media is, is Actually, we academics also do it, coin these different phrases that are really catchy, um, and we use them because because they're easy to use mm-hmm. and they they kind of approximate realities, but very often they they kind of obfuscate um, what's mm-hmm. what's really true. Uh, so, for example, one of the kind of links that are constantly made in the media is that between. Um, Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda or weapons of mass destruction and terrorism and the links between um, luckily this kind of link is being challenged in the media today Mm. but the other one which relates to our topic today uh, of reform is the link and what you think about the link between uh, democracy and overcoming terror Mm. so this kind of idea that if you whatever the word is, do you impose it, do you offer it on a platter, do you spoon feed it to the people, democracy, then you're, you won't have a 9-11 anymore. Mm-hmm. So what, what is the kind of logical basis for making that kind of link? Um, then something that, uh, you know, I, I often find that the way the Arab world is presented makes them seem kind of uh, mindlessly ungrateful. Like, uh, America's always doing all these good things, and the Arabs uh, are so upset and angry all the time. Um, So, you know, I just, uh, it's it's true, if you read the Arab media, there's a lot of anger, but is it really true that Americans don't understand the roots of that anger? Um, Then, coming back to Iraq, the people that you spoke to who were not part of the governing council, what do they? Uh, well, how do they perceive the this kind of espoused American role of uh, instilling democracy or creating democracy in Iraq? Do they take that at face value, or do they have the same kind of uh, do they um, have the same kind of uh, su- suspicious attitude as the rest of the Arab world does? I mean, are they so ecstatic about getting rid of Saddam that they, uh, that they are happy to latch on to anything even if they're not quite sure what the motives and the outcomes are so I mean I can imagine people from the governing council uh, you know feeling one way but what about the rest of the people uh, how how um, credible are they you know how what kind of credibility do they assign to the US role when it comes to reforming uh, the political system of Iraq um, let's see then uh, I was just reading an article about some of the f- factions in mm-hmm. Iraq. The Shalabi, the the young Shalabi, mm-hmm. the nephew, mm-hmm. and Istrabadi, mm-hmm. both being Shiites. Uh, no, uh, I think I think they're they're both Shiites. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, I mean, what kind of uh, how popular are these people? Because mm-hmm. I, I I know the Shalabi family doesn't. Uh, carry a lot of um, mm, popularity in a lot of Arabic circles, so I was just wondering, are Iraq? How, what is the level of despair of Iraqis, or not despair, but kind of relief mm-hmm. that they would compromise? Because people, you know, compromise is sometimes necessary, and I just want to know how, uh, how clearly the lines are drawn between we will do this and we will not do that, or how much expediency is playing a role mm-hmm. in who they accept. In, in the next juncture to lead them. I mean, this is a mystery to me. Uh, then the numbers. Is it true that only 20% of Iraqis are Sunnis? You know, I, mm-hmm. I've never heard such a low figure. Right. It would be amazing that they, uh, you know, that would be very interesting. Um, so yeah, the numbers are very hard to, to get at. Um, I don't know if I'm throwing too many things. Um, on the table for discussion here. I mean, and by the way, th- this is uh, really for your benefit maybe to just start the discussion. These are not, I'm not, I don't mean to interrogate you personally, despite uh, Susan's uh, invitation to do that. But yeah, if these are just kind of issues that I think are relevant for uh, the topic of reform in the Middle East. Um, yeah, I can't, I, can't, I can't tell you, uh, I, th- I think a very important thing maybe that I can uh, finish with is the, uh, I, I mean, I love America, believe me. It's my second home. I've lived here longer than I have in the Middle East. Uh, but there is an unfortunate trend happening, which is the alienation of very moderate people in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. Uh, alienation of moderate intellectuals and thinkers who have studied here, who've lived here, and who've uh, enjoyed very much their experience here. Uh, I think one of the most potent images, if for somebody who lives even in a relatively open society like Egypt is when uh, at the end of an election, a presidential election, when the, uh, what do you call him, the defeated person uh, is walking away after his concession speech, uh, conceding his, the other person's victory, uh, it brings tears to every Arab's eyes because this is exactly what people want in the Arab world. They want, you know, normal kind of change in government, peaceful change in government, and uh, you know, an end to kind of nepotism, monarchical systems, and you know, just normal uh, change of uh, leadership. Um, This, this is a a very potent uh, desire and has always been. I don't think it's fair to link it as, as uh, Tom Friedman does, to the ouster of Saddam. As if we, you know, we needed some kind of uh, out, outside intervention to realize that this is what we wanted. Uh, so that's another kind of um, issue. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot of things that I want to mention. but maybe in the course of the discussion we can bring them up. Oh, one more thing is as, as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the whole thing about Al Jazeera, and. I, I don't know. I, I'm wondering. I don't. I don't have a satellite dish, so I don't watch Al Jazeera except uh, during the summer when I'm in Egypt. And I would say the one thing that I would deem inflammatory, uh, and I don't think inflammatory is necessarily bad because some things are flammable. You know, they just by by their nature. But when it comes to talk shows, mm. um, I think their most popular show is called The Opposite Direction and uh, the idea behind it is to get two radically different points of view and they go at length each each point of view is expressed very very uh, thoroughly at the beginning of each program uh, also market i mean do they all speak with one voice does the arabic medias all speak with one voice that's another important thing i think it's uh, very often the market kind of uh, dictates what happens so if you you know if you want to have an audience you're going to have you're going to have to have some kind of fiery debate you can't just be spewing forth the same thing over and over um also the the saudi government owns a lot of arabic media so that's kind of an assurance that a conservative point of view is going to be you know quite represented right. uh as well as maybe even having american columnists on this media express themselves mm-hmm. um Okay. I'll stop.
0: Well, I, um, we'll be here until about midnight <laughs> lock the doors, please. We can, no one can leave until no, answer questions. this is, question. this
1: is for all of us. Just to chill. Let me just answer i like,
0: thank you so much. It's very helpful. Um, and let me just answer two and then I'd like to hear what other people have to say on the, on the broader issues. Or, or the South, I'm fascinated with the Saudi media, so I'm going to lead to the last point. There's a, there's a bigger core issue you raised there. Um, the largest-selling newspaper in the Arab world is al Lausa. It sells about 250,000 copies a day. Um, Twenty-two Arab countries, 320 million people at least. Astounding. <coughs> the level of, of, of disrespect and disuse, the, the media largely speaks to the elite. And, and, and Shaka, the two major newspapers in the Arab world are both owned by the Saudis printed in London, doesn't it? because they want to escape their own censorship and they're brought back into the Arab world. It's very difficult in the arab world to really know what's happening mm-hmm. i even though um and what's happened is that you have this very rapid explosion in arab television starting with al um, jazeera el gazir depending upon your accent and um coming from qatar and they have done something which i find fascinating for all the 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 problems they create which is they do um feed it um Uh, Emotions. They do focus. They simplify issues. For the first time, you find people who, all of a sudden, say, "Wait a minute. Let me turn the TV on and see what happened." And people are connected. I can't tell you how many times I'd be in the West Bank in Ramallah, and there was a shooting, something happening, and they'd say, "Let me just check and turn on Al Jazeera," and all of a sudden you said. They believe the news. The news is real. and They have a faith in it. This did not exist for a long time. Secondly, if you watched Arab television for a long time, tonight's news was the king, his royal majesty sat down, and then he stood up and tomorrow will be very hot. That's tonight's news. Um, for many years, there was no interest. That, that was the news that existed. All of a sudden, you have news. Now, the problem with the Arab media is that al Jazeera started in Qatar in the Bay and they began criticizing other countries, so the Saudi says, this can't go on. They bought other stations, and they created al-Arabiya. And then you have other, you have a competition, and everyone. So you have the same problem again: is that we have the money, we have the message, and they attack each other. And the danger in the Arab world is that they simplify the the stations. And so um, that sounds
1: just like Al which was right, which was founded by the Americans and exactly. is based in Washington.
0: Right, right. And that's what the Americans have created the uh, the the free mm. one in, in the Arab world they called Al Abdu, the slave, also. Um, and the assumption is that the americans can be like the bbc which is relatively trusted um in the in the arab world and we're, we're pouring millions of dollars into this um and the assumption that we can give our message out in iraq you have radio free iraq uh, um, which is very interesting and um, i know, and then also you have the radio station radio sawa which is very popular in the arab world and it's an interesting spin what it's 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 the they're taking the American american um, radio and what it does is that it takes fast, quick music, and um, an American message. So instead of saying uh, Palestinian uh, martyrs, they'll say fighters, um, and the whole idea is is to move the dialogue in a different direction. It, uh, my gut feeling, just very quickly, I think it's very important that the, that where people do not read books, do not have access to newspapers, that they can at least see this dialogue, and that's why I like that. But they're they and. I can tell you that one of the great dangers of, of the emotion of the Arab media was during the, the war. Um, if you watched Arab television, Al Jazeera leading the pack, you would think the Americans would be kicked out of Iraq any day now. Absolutely no, no connection to reality. Um, and there was a wonderful editorial in one of the newspapers that said, you're doing the same thing that happened in 1967, when you said, we will conquer the Israelis in one moment, and the whole Arab world believed that lie and it was in Lasz that said that, and they were following a Saudi agenda, but that's where that's, why that's, that's I'm, I'm enthused, and I've, I find it also encouraging that this is taking place, maybe the next generation, there'll be more of a clash of thoughts, but you, 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 this did not exist before. The bigger issue to talk about, it's very important, and I may be openly frank about what I see happening in, in, um, in Iraq, the Americans had one plan that they threw aside moments before the war began, and that was a plan to go into Iraq to, to um, work with Iraqi society, to maintain stability. This was a plan developed by the State Department. In, in the short time, just before the war, the Pentagon took over. And, and the biggest result of that is that we went in, we won a very quick battle, and it instantly had instability. And a lot of the understandings of what Iraq society needed, um, the return to stability of hospitals, schools, and public services did not take place. That was the first mistake that the Americans made in Iraq. The Americans chose the 25-member um, Iraqi governing council of people who they thought would be most accessible. So essentially we did what the British did before. We, we picked the people we thought would, would, would monitor our voices. As of last May or June, it would seem that they had never heard of a man named Sheikh Sustani. Hard to believe, but the occupying forces never realized there was a city named Najaf of Karbala and happened to be a sacred site to Shiites. There was no recognition of the role of, and if you look back, it was, it was astounding. And and I'm, I'm, if you watch the, the, our coverage, American media, I think the media discovered. They said, excuse me, you know, guys, you're making a big mistake here. They're writing these fatwas. And all of a sudden, the, the government, you know, after saying, you know, we will have, um, rule for two to three years. That was the plan. It was like in Germany and Japan. There was no acknowledgement. But within a two-month period, suddenly they recognition that there is this the Shiite resistance. There are clerics who have roles. Suddenly turned around, and the Americans in, in one month said, okay, we're out. A year from now, um, come uh, June 1, we will leave. A remarkable turnaround in two areas. It shows our lack of our understanding of the situation. Um, and which, which, is, which is a flaw. At the same time, going back, uh, the early sp- talks by L. Paul Bremer, the, uh, the head of the American occupation in Iraq said this will not be an Islamic state. We, will, we were here to, to establish democracy in the Middle East, and we will not let another Islamic state flourish, and that's vanished from the, uh, the headlines nowadays. So we've, we've slowly learned. We've made a lot of mistakes in Iraq, mm-hmm. and, and unfortunately, the mistakes will continue. Um, and we've set these forces in, in, into um, into in, into play. And then let me step for a second. And, and you raise a good question on how do we do journalism? Sometimes it's pure mystery. Um, it's 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 guesswork. Um, you know, in the Arab world, um, often you're not invited. You can't talk to people. Um, I, I always I always tell the story about uh, I, I waited. I made an application to, uh, in Egypt one time to find something out about the economy. I waited three weeks for the meeting, and we, we sat down with the, with the spokesman for the minister, and he read me the numbers, and I said, well, gee, you know, I'm told the numbers are different. He goes, that could be. <laughs> and I said, why did I wait this long? It didn't make sense. Um, we, we try very hard, journalists, and we make mistakes. Um, I think what I find, at least encouraging, is the tremendous competition that you see in the Middle East right now. Um, 20 years ago, we would have had three news television stations, five media dominating. Now you have hundreds of journalists covering Iraq. You have the internet, you have blogs of Iraqis talking to others. And um, it's very hard to be mute and, and dumb in this consequence and the competition is so great so if the washington post discovers reality the new york times will wait a week and they'll discover reality too and we will discover reality a month later sooner or later um, it catches and so what you find is that journalists learn from one another you learn you learn from contexts and the, the second thing that i find also very encouraging about middle eastern coverage it's improving is that you have native born native speakers um, I don't know how many of you have read the stories of Anthony Shahid for the Washington Post. If you haven't, I urge you to go click on the Washington Post, and the, he won the Pulitzer Prize. Excellent reporting, insightful, beautiful writing. Um, and he and I covered a march one day, and it was the first march soon after where um, uh, the clerks began saying, No, we cannot allow the Americans to set up this. Crazy sort of uh, Chamber of Commerce meetings, we want to have elections. And I went to that in March, and I, my Arabic is in bed, and I could read the signs and talk to people. And I wrote a story, and then I read history the next day, and it was like I hadn't been in the same country. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so much more analytical, it, it understood what was mm-hmm. happening, it put it in all in context. And that, to me, and I've, I've been in, in, in the Arab world as a journalist since 1967, a great step forward is that you're seeing more people who understand the language, who speak and, and can converse and not go through translators. And so that, I'm encouraged by that, but we make a lot of mistakes. And, and there's no question that our, our lenses are colored and tinted, you know. We're talking today, and the, because of the great danger now in Iraq, how, um, journalists can't travel freely. I was talking to our office in Baghdad, and they were saying, we don't leave the house where we live. In fact, we don't live in a house right now, we have to move out to someplace else that's safe. So some journalists are now traveling again with the the army. Well, that changes your point of view all of a sudden. If you're traveling with the army, because they can take you to Fallujah or to um, Basra, what story do you get? And that changes it. So we try very hard, Um, not all of us. depends upon our level of bravery um, and our our comfortableness. Sometimes we make mistakes. um, But I'm encouraged by, by both the the pressure to be there and th- and the other thing which I find fascinating is that technology has changed so markedly. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, um, I covered the uh, the Iran Iraq War, and the only way I could transmit my stories back to Chicago was to to um, read them over telephone very slowly so that Saddam sensor could hear and that took a long time. Um, today. You can buy a satellite phone and get a computer and go anywhere in the world and you can cover these things. And this changes uh, our coverage of the world. And so that, to me, is, 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 is impressive And the very fact that you have both the Arab world and us going in there, um, means that there's, there's greater tension. That's for one. And then the last issue, which I don't want to really answer, I like to hear what other people have to say is, I think there, I- there are tremendous problems of Arab rage towards the West. I think that it's a constant theme, and I don't think, I, maybe I don't write about it enough. Um, I think there's a lot of anger at what we do, A, meaning America and the West, B, what we stand for, and C, our narcissism. Um, all those are important issues. I don't think Americans realize that and, and put it in context, and that, that is a problem, and it's a problem on the ground in Iraq, uh, and, and all throughout the Arab world, um, and, so it, and it, it's a day-to-day problem in a lack of translation very small the Americans say they're going to catch uh, uh, this and a, a Shiite cleric and we will catch him or kill him. well you don't do that in the Arab world you don't make that you don't send that message out you begin' it's a negotiation this is this is, this is not um, um, the, the wild West you're, you're dealing with and you know in, in that context I think that at the same time, there is a tremendous amount of Uncle Sam envy in, in, in the Arab world. And it's a very schizophrenic situation, where, and I, I've tried to translate that at a time, as much as the Arab, Arab world, which is, does not exist, um, there's thing as the Arab world, there, there are 22 Arab countries who all have different personalities that sometimes don't get along with each other, and speak different languages, but there's a general aspect of it, who really like what they see in American culture. I'll say one very quick story. Um, I was doing a story in the boycott of American products in Saudi Arabia. And late one night, I went to this little mall facing uh, in Riyadh, and I went to a Dunkin' Donuts near these two students there. And I said, are you taking part in the boycott of American products? He said, yes, we will not take part in American products. They stand for the oppression of the Palestinians. They oppress our lives. They send sin and pornography. I said, uh, I'm having a problem here. You're drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee. He says, "But we love this coffee." <laughs> <laughs> says, she says, "I said, well, there's a good, there's a coffee shop over there that looks to me like it's owned by a scientist. Please don't take our, you know, Dunkin' Donuts coffee away. Give us two years." <laughs> um, so I think, in, in some ways, we're we're appreciated, but we're also disliked, and we don't understand that. That's my. Yeah. Idea.